Welcome to Part 3, Continuing the Story of Aerosmith's Grind. George's Mills, New Hampshire, it all went down at the barn, or maybe it was down the road next to a freshly mowed lawn. By the time Joe Perry and Tom Hamilton returned to Sunapee for a 1970 Labor Day party, they'd already auditioned a drummer for their new band. While he'd only been back at school for two months, Joey wasn't sure he wanted to leave Berkeley to get back into the band scene, even before they told him that they'd be going with their singing drummer. The pair probably should have spoken with Stephen first, but seemed pretty sure that he was going to join their new band in Boston, even before they headed up to Sunapee. Joe recalled speaking with Stephen in Rock Cellar magazine, he was playing with his one partner, Don Solomon, and he wasn't getting anywhere. I know he was kind of getting disillusioned with the whole thing, he said to me he was thinking about doing something else and forgetting about the music business. He was getting sick of it and at the very least wanted to take a break from it for a while. So that's when I said, look, Tom and I have moved into this apartment. We're looking for a singer and a drummer and we've got a couple more bedrooms and we're looking to fill them, what do you think? Stephen was responsive to the idea, but adamant that he didn't want to drum. He wanted to focus all his energy on fronting a band rather than be trapped in the background. That didn't phase Joe, he knew that Joey with his R&B-tinged playing could add a unique seasoning to their sound if he also came on board or that another drummer could be found. Ultimately, the sequence of Stephen finding out about Joey, or vice versa, with memories differing, doesn't much matter. Raymond recalled, Joey came walking into the store one day. He tells me, I heard that you're forming a band with Stephen Tyler. He was going to Berkeley Music School at the time. So, he asked if I could get him an audition. I said, absolutely, and called Stephen and told him what was going on, and he agreed. I told Joey what was going on the next day, and he came down to Boston University. He was wearing a Captain America Shield t-shirt. He walked in and sat down on the drums, and Stephen told him what we wanted to play, and he played it. He's the only guy that showed up. We didn't know anybody else. Either way, Stephen and Joey knew one another, so matters were settled. Even at that earliest stage, there was already a tug of wills present. It was a foundational friction, with the personalities jostling for advantage or dominance. Joe was open to the idea of two guitarists in the group with other successful bands, such as the Yardbirds, Stones, and Fleetwood Mac having utilized that model. There was a short period where Stephen, Joe, Tom, Pudge Scott, and Raymond jammed together, both in Sunapee and at the BU rehearsal space, prior to the first Aerosmith lineup coalescing. In some ways, Raymond Tabano was the keystone to the formation of Aerosmith. Born in the Bronx on December 23, 1946, he was both friends with Stephen Tyler and acquainted with Joey Kramer during their youth in Yonkers. Raymond's mother had played a bit of mandolin while his father owned a bar in the Bronx. It was there that he and Stephen would later casually perform, though initially Stephen was the guitarist and Raymond the drummer. Stephen and Raymond had been friends for years, following their first introduction, Raymond recalled that meeting, noting, when we moved to Yonkers, from the Bronx, there was a huge lake down the block. I walked down the block one day, when I first got there, and I couldn't see the lake, because there's all this forest. So, I climb up this tree, and I'm looking out over the lake, and I'm really digging what I'm seeing. All of a sudden, I heard this guy screaming, Hey motherfucker, what are you doing up in my tree? I looked down, and it was Stephen. I said, What do you mean, your tree? And he's like, Hey man, that's my tree. That's how we met. He told me I was in his tree, 
and I think I might have tried to spit on his head or something. He walked away, and I met him again about two weeks later, he was hanging around one of the streets, he had one of his friends come over and try to start a fight with me. However, once they started hanging out together, Raymond felt they were soon drawn closer because they liked many of the same activities, though he was a couple of years older than Stephen. Raymond lived a block over from Stephen at 214 Mountaindale Road. Within a couple of years, Tabano was playing in a rival band to Tyler while both attended Roosevelt High School. Where Stephen's band was more Beatles-esque, Raymond's was more aligned with the Stones. Raymond recalled his joining that band, I was playing the guitar for a while, and I really wasn't that great at it. These kids in high school approached me and asked me to join their band. I asked, why do you want me to join your band? They said, well, because you used to be a tough guy, and now, you're not. All these guys pick on us, but if you were in the band, they wouldn't. I didn't even have a guitar, so they got me Hagstrom bass. So, I got in the band, the Dantes. And that's how it all started. Essentially, the pair were running around the same scene, and like Stephen, Raymond also survived a drug bust in July 1967, ending up on probation. The pair eventually joined forces in William Proud, the last band in which Stephen was drumming full-time. Raymond recalls, there was some original material. Twitty Farron was a really great guitar player, an incredible mechanic. We played a lot of Hendrix stuff. We played a lot of Stones, and Beatles stuff. We did a few original songs here and there, dance-oriented type of stuff. We played three sets, so we had to stretch a lot of songs out. We played Reefer Headwomen a lot, Cross Down Traffic, Come On, and Texas-style blues. I think, it was, the song, Come On, that we ended our set with. We also did Sly and the Family Stone, Hum's intro figure of Thank You. The band ended abruptly one night in Long Island. Raymond's recollections about the band's demise are clear, we were doing a gig down in Long Island with the William Proud Band. Stephen had a huge fight with Don Solomon. He told him, I don't want to play the drums anymore. I want to be up in the front. I want to be the front man. I can't get the show across from behind the set of drums. He was like an animal in a cage. He wanted to get away from it, get up in front of the stage. And Don was like, no, we can't do that. We can't afford another guy to take Stephen's place on drums, dot. So, Stephen says, fuck that. I don't care. Then I'm going to go start my own band. I said, Stephen, listen, man, I was talking to Susan, Raymond's girlfriend, and we want to move to Boston. We're going to get a shop up there. Her father had already found a location for us on this place called Newberry Street. Why don't you go get that guy, Joe? I get the shop opened up, and we'll have a base of operation. You bring them down to Boston, and we'll start the band there. He thought it was a good idea and fucking hitchhiked that night from Long Island to freaking New Hampshire. He got up there, and about two days later, he hooked up with Joe Perry. And that's how the whole thing started. It wasn't quite as dramatic as Stephen strangling a guitarist. In Sunapee, there was a brief transitional period between the jam band and the formation of Aerosmith MK.1, consisting of Joe Perry, Stephen Tyler, Tom Hamilton, and Pudge Scott on drums. Raymond moved to Boston and opened his leather shop, The Yellow Cow. Joe told Rock Cellar magazine, I didn't know Stephen very well at that point, I had talked with him a few times and jammed with him a few times. He said, I want to bring this guy in to play guitar. 
The last three years, before that I'd played with a three-piece band or a band that had five or six players. I'd tried every kind of lineup, so I was kind of flexible there. Raymond had a really cool look. He had a leather shop. He was into the American Indian kind of look and had hair down to his butt. He wore an Indian chest plate. Being receptive to the concept of working with another guitarist was little different from playing with John McGuire in earlier bands. Initially, Joe felt that Raymond was decent enough on rhythm to justify his involvement. He explained, Raymond was a good rhythm guitar player in the classic sense. With the Beatles, you had George Harrison, who was the lead guitar player, and John Lennon, who played rhythm, and there was a very clear distinction between what each cat played. Ray was really focused on playing rhythm, and I was doing the leads. When the band got together Stephen, Tyler, wanted someone he knew in the band, and he knew Ray for a long time. Even at that stage, there was a tug-of-war for control, a psychological chess game being played, with the buying personalities coming together. Raymond later recalled in Boston Magazine, Joe is kind of demure and laid-back, where Stephen is flamboyant and outrageous. You put those two things together, and you're going to get friction, and when you get friction, you get sparks, and when you get sparks, you get a fire. Raymond added a third personality type into the mix opposite to Tom's generally mellow nature. Ultimately, Pudge wasn't going to be joining the new band. Raymond recalled, his parents told him the same thing that our friends in Yonkers' parents told them, hey, you ain't fucking going to Boston to start a band, you're getting a fucking job, pal. So, he couldn't leave. Tom just up and left. Tom is the quietest guy, we used to call him Mr. Mayonnaise. He just told his parents, I'm leaving. I'll see you later. With Joe, Tom, and Mark already living at 1325 Commonwealth, Joey, and his great Dane, Tiger, soon joined them, and when Stephen arrived, the Yonkers boys initially shared a room in the back. They got menial jobs to make ends meet, with Joe working as a janitor and sweeping the floors at a local Brookline synagogue. Mark was playing taxi with his van, a useful commodity in a college town, and Stephen worked in a bagel shop. Tom worked as an orderly in a nursing home until he creatively managed to lie and cheat my way into a training program which paid about $2 per hour, as he recounted in a San Pedro news pilot piece in 1973. Joey focused on getting back to 100% following his assortment of health challenges. Initially, the band had no name other than Joe's new band or Stephen's new band, discarding ideas such as Hooker, with Stephen alluding to the point in circus raves in 1974 that playing the clubs is prostitution anyway. Another suggestion was Spike Jones, before Joey suggested Aerosmith. It was a band name he'd had in his head since he was a teenager, inspired by Harry Nilsson's 1968 Ariel Ballet album title. With a name, the band's identity started to be forged in the communal apartment and seemingly endless practices in their rehearsal space at Boston University or the basement of the building. The band played hour after hour to hone their performance. The communal living bonded them and gave Stephen and Joe time to become comfortable together. While Stephen would remain the band's primary songwriter, the pair learned to work together and off each other's strengths to make the music stronger. Joe recalled in a 1986 guitar for the Practicing Musician piece, The Early Practices, We Drilled a Lot. We would pick the songs apart. I remember Tommy and Joey would drill, playing a part over and over. Sometimes the whole band would cook on one lick, just to get that pulse going. Where Stephen might have driven them crazy, especially Joey, 
with his perfectionism and incessant demands, his knowledge and experience were something that the rest of the band knew they lacked. He was guiding them so that all five pairs of hands would play a part in massaging the raw musical clay into form. While it may have felt like boot camp to Joey at times, he learned to take direction from not only Stephen, but other members of the band. Joey later recognized the benefits of the torturous process, commenting to Modern Drummer in 1984, I have to give Stephen a lot of credit because he had a lot to do with the style that I picked up when we started as a band. He turned me on to a lot of things. I never knew what it was like to fall into a pocket and make the band cook. Stephen made me realize that I was the one who was responsible for making the band feel right. And so, they argued and snorted their way to musical perfection and bliss. With a few weeks of rehearsals under their belt, Aerosmith played their first paying gig at the Nipmuc Regional High School's gym in Menden on November 6, 1970. Their set consisted mostly of covers, as detailed in Walk This Way, if memories are correct, though six of the songs performed that night later turned up on Aerosmith albums. Perhaps inevitably, Rattlesnake Shake had to be present, being the Fleetwood Mac song that had delivered to Stephen a most pleasing come feeling, what the Japanese describe as Kenja Taimu, from witnessing the jam band perform it, and it wasn't necessarily about the quality of the playing, the groove they had locked into momentarily. Raymond noted the importance of the song, Stephen had seen Joe play at the barn. When he saw them do Rattlesnake Shake and jump up in the air and play the guitar, that's what sold Stephen on Joe. He told me, you got to see this fucking guy. He jumps up and down. He fucking plays rock and roll. He's crazy, he's great. The first gig was a no-frills affair. Tom Hamilton recalled in the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, we set up on the floor of the gym for their big dance and we were there playing the songs that we had learned so far. We played gigs at high schools because we could play the songs that we wanted. We never failed to get an audience jumping. But, after a couple of years, Stephen started writing with Joe, and gradually we had our own songs. They earned $50, though the show nearly didn't take place due to the band drinking and Stephen liberating a Nip McFizz. Add t-shirt from a student's locker, which he wore for the show, and later. Stephen and Joe had a big blow-up following the show with Joe being accused of playing too loud. It wasn't the first argument on that topic, and it certainly wasn't the last. For Tom, the band wanted to start out doing things their way. He told the guitar for the Practicing Musician magazine, we were not at all interested in going to clubs and playing five sets. So, we picked out songs that were fun for us to play and that people could dance to. We did frat parties and gigs like that. So, you first create and realize your stylistic identity by the songs that you pick to cover. Other shows in town hall auditoriums followed through to the end of 1970. Joe also recalled the band's early ethos to the Boston Phoenix in 1976. We saw too many bands trapped in the $800 a week, four sets a night syndrome. So, we played at high schools, out of town mostly, on Friday and Saturday nights, and did our own show. There were two sets, about half our own material and half covers. Some of the other covers the band performed during their earliest shows included The Stones' Honky Tonk Woman and Live With Me, All Your Love from John Mayall, John Lennon's Cold Turkey, Peter Gunn, and Shapes of Things. Joe recalled in Walk This Way, if you couldn't play a whole set of what was on the jukebox, nobody wanted you, but the band also failed plenty of club auditions simply due to their volume. From the beginning, Aerosmith weren't much interested in conformity. 
Regardless, until they had enough songs of their own, they needed a musical arsenal to draw from to sprinkle their own songs in between. As 1971 dawned, the group broadened their horizons towards various regional venues they had played with other bands previously, often shows booked by Ed Malhoyt. By April 1971, with just a handful of shows performed, the band was starting to look to recording demos to send into record labels, but other than Stephen, they were utter novices with few useful connections. With Mark hauling them around, they were very much a cottage industry, a band paying their dues slowly trying to work their way up. It's ironic to consider that a band that would become known as a Boston band had not played a single club in the city through much of their first year, other than the occasional BU performance. During the summer of 1971, the band started undergoing a crisis, caused by a deterioration in the band members' relationship with Raymond. Playing with Raymond for a few months made it clear to Joe that it was not the sort of dual-guitar relationship he had been looking for. He told Rockseller magazine, That's one of the reasons I was so attracted to Fleetwood Mac and especially the Yardbirds when they had Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page in the band at the same time. They were breaking tradition with two lead guitar players in the same band. It wasn't like listening to The Shadows or The Ventures where you had one guy playing lead and one guy playing chords. I didn't have that with Ray, and I wanted that element in Aerosmith. Furthermore, Raymond was strong-willed, independent, and often combative. Not living with the rest of the band didn't make Raymond feel like outsider, but he wasn't keeping up with the others musically. He recalled, I'm the only one of us that really had a job. Joe Perry had a job a couple of times. He would work at a place for a week and then say, I can't do this. I don't think Joey Kramer was working at the time. Stephen definitely wasn't working. Tom wasn't working. I was only one had a job. We were scrounging money all the time. We'd do a gig here and there during that time. Tom's sister got us a couple of gigs up in New Hampshire and Ed Malhoyt got us a couple of gigs. But the gigs were far in between. But I had money, because I had my little business and little things going on the side, it was the 70s. I really didn't feel like I was apart from it because I was always there. I was always at the apartment anyway, or they were always down on my store. We were always together rehearsing. There was always something going on. But others felt he intimidated other members and was argumentative. Tom was blunt about him in 1989 in Shark Magazine, he wanted things to go his way and his level of playing really didn't justify all the tantrums and fighting that went on as a result of his personality. Even Stephen had to look back on his friend's obvious flaws in VH1's Behind the Music, he was such a wise-ass and tough guy, he pissed everybody off. But for Joe, the most important issue was Raymond's musical growth, or lack thereof, he explained in Rock Cellar magazine, if he had continued to grow with the rest of the band, he may still have been in the band. But he was kind of all over the place. He'd be late for rehearsals. Not only were we learning and getting better on our own as individuals, we were learning to find a sound and starting to develop a real musical backbone by putting our own touches on the cover songs that we were doing. That led to us finding our sound. I found there was a space there and a gap. There weren't many American bands that were doing that two-guitar blues thing. Raymond was very much aware of his musical inadequacies and external distractions, but was unapologetic. When the band returned to Sunapee to play a show with Joe Jammer at the barn in the summer of 1971, they attended a just-in-time show down the lake at Sunapee Harbor. 
From the moment Aerosmith encountered guitarist Brad Whitford, Raymond's days were numbered, even though he attempted to force the other band members to choose him or Stephen. Raymond recalled his exit, when Joe started going out with Alyssa Jarrett and she met this guy, Joe Jammer, another guy that wanted to be a rock star. He had an album that never went anywhere. But he's the one that put that thought into her head that, you got to get somebody else, Ray's not dedicated enough. It turns out that Twitty Farron, who used to play with me and Stephen in William Proud, had a band in Salem, Massachusetts, called Just In Time. It was him, Bobby Little, Jerry Belieg, and Brad Whitford. So, Alyssa told Joe to check out Brad, and Joe decided he liked Brad's playing better than mine and that I wasn't dedicated enough. So, Tom told me, we think that maybe you've got to practice more. We're going to get another guitar. I didn't really even give a shit at that point. So, Brad basically came from his band into Aerosmith, and I wound up in just in time. We even opened for them one time, in Revere, in 1972. I can't remember the name of the place. But he didn't go meekly. Ultimately, it took Stephen's direct intervention, prior to a booking at the Savage Beast in Escutney, Vermont, to make it clear to Raymond that he was out of the band. Looking back, Raymond is pragmatic about what went down, that's another thing I noticed when Stephen and Joe got together. That was what Stephen was looking for. I couldn't give it to him. I was floating around, I had a store, I had a motorcycle, I was making some money on the side. I was carrying on all the time partying. Joe was more focused, and he wanted it to happen. So, the two of them together. I could tell right from the beginning, something is going to happen with these two guys. I knew something was going to happen. I just knew it. I guess that's what Aerosmith is. Everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. If I was supposed to be in the band, I'd be in the band. Following his departure, Raymond played with Justin Time for a while and then sold his shop and headed for a commune in Maine. Tyler eventually urged him to return to Boston, with him initially going out on the road as a friend and then as part of the band's crew. He recalled, my first job with the band was I hung out with them. That was my job. I traveled with them on the plane. That caused problems according to David Krebs, in many ways, having Ray Tabato on the road would have been like the Beatles having Pete Best out with them, it was an impossible situation. As the band grew big the jealousy became really extreme. Raymond asserts that the jealousy came from the road crew and that he soon took on various roles as part of the crew. Eventually, he was relieved from the road and became the band's marketing director and managed the warehouse. He redesigned Aerosmith's winged logo and made other valuable contributions to the organization, staying with the organization for the rest of the decade. End of Part 3